Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is a special series on Malcolm X and Black nationalism. In this series, we delve into the background of Malcolm X's action and thought in the context of Black nationalism, correcting the fundamentally mistaken notion that Malcolm X was a civil rights leader. He certainly did not see himself in that way and explicitly argued otherwise. This helps us place the Afro-American struggle in its dimensions beyond the current American nation-state, including the Black Atlantic, and beyond. Today, our guest is Cedric Burroughs, author of Rhetorical Crossover, The Black Presence in White Culture, published this year by University of Pittsburgh Press. However, for this series, we'll be focusing on his very interesting PhD thesis, the construction of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X in composition textbooks, rereading readers, which he completed at the University of Kansas and is actually available online. Welcome, Cedric. Well, thank you, Kirk. How, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure. I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm joining you from Trinidad and Tobago, actually, in the Caribbean. Uh, where am I speaking to you from? Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So okay. a lot colder up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we like to start off our um, our interviews with the authors and writers, just giving us a bit of a background uh, to yourself, and especially in relation to the subject of this book, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and composition textbooks. Uh, could you do that for us? Okay, so I give some context about why I wrote it, or yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, what was your interest before? What what brought you to this, to the interest in you know these subjects? Okay, sure. So, yes, I would say that as part of my growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, I was born and raised there. Okay, and. Uh, you know, being from Memphis, so, you know, there was a place where King was assassinated. So the history was always there when I was growing up because uh, one of my first memories was actually a Sunday drive and my father pointing to the R- Lorraine Motel before it became the Civil Rights Museum and pointed to the spot where King was killed. And I remember going there when it became the Civil Rights Museum. We got a early tour before it opened fully to the public. And right. so... That history was always there and learning about it. even when the holiday became official in the United States. I remember, you know, we learned about it in school and I remember a teacher was saying, imagine if you couldn't go to McDonald's and you had to because of the color of your skin. And so that was how we learned about Martha King. Yeah. And Malcolm X. Were your parents part of the civil rights movement? No, they were, I think probably by the time they became teenagers or so, that there was probably ending by the time in Memphis. Okay. But my grandparents, they had better memories of 
civil rights movement and segregation because my grandfather was born in 1917. My grandmother was born in 1921. Okay. And so they shared a lot of stories about that time where, you know, that they had to walk up to the balcony for the movie theater or if they wanted to go and get something to eat in certain restaurants, they had to stand up and eat it or go to the back. Um, so, but my parents, they had some, some memories of segregation. Like my father talked about when he went to the circus that they separated black children and white children with a sheet. And so, and so they had some memories. So they also remember very vividly where they were when King was assassinated. So like my father said, they were watching TV and, when his aunts ran into the den and said the king was assassinated and how they were on the curfew and how um, when Coretta Scott King came to Memphis after King's death, that he was actually marching along with a lot of other people behind Coretta Scott King uh, when that happened. And so that, yeah, so they had a lot of memories of that and about Chuck, about Memphis at that time in terms of even though they had segregation, they also remember they had a big, strong community because they had their own schools, businesses. And so it was a, it was it was a very, I'll say, a complex situation of sorts. But, yeah, they share a lot of vivid memories of it. So when I was mm-hmm. growing up, my teachers, especially, they would share a lot of those memories. I remember my sixth grade teacher telling us about how they would get secondhand textbooks from white schools and how she used to rip them up and mark unfit because she was saying that if it wasn't fit for the other students, it wasn't fit for her students as well. Or yeah. wearing a black arm brand or something like that to have better e- equity in school. So growing up, that was all around me, especially in my Learning of Malcolm X is an interesting story was I was watching PBS when I was like seven years old and it was a documentary Eyes on a Prize series, if you're familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. Very and much. I remember I was like, oh, OK, civil rights movement, because, you know, little kid, I heard about it. And so the first thing I see is Malcolm X speaking. And it was it was like, wow, because I was used to King speaking, and, you know, the slow cadence and everything. And he was somebody yeah. who was very direct when he spoke and it was very fast. And then what he said was like, Oh, wow. Yeah. This is what I, <laughs> I didn't know anything about Malcolm X or anything like that. So I'm like, okay, I was like hooked on watching yeah. this show at seven years old. That's and, right. and this was back in 1989. Mm-hmm. And then the next year was, I think I would say the Malcolm X explosion where you had the Malcolm X t-shirts, the baseball the cap. Film and yeah, yeah. And all the marketing around that. Yeah. Yeah. And actually when I was in sixth That's grade, that was, yeah. Yeah. In sixth grade, that was my field trip to go to the movie to see Malcolm X. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so um, imagine like all these sixth graders, we watching the movie and we were like saying, I'm Malcolm X, you know, when um, we will be in. Yeah, at the end. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was a case where, Growing up in that time period where a lot of people talk about the activism now, but I remember there was a lot of activism in the early 90s as well. Mm-hmm. And how like with King, some people felt he was co-opted and so they adopted Malcolm X because they felt he could speak for this generation. And so there were so many books that were being uh, written about Malcolm X children's books. And I remember reading a lot of them. And so having that history is it always had an interest in learning about King and Malcolm X and the civil rights movement. So 
when I was a graduate student back in 03, I remember my first class, it was a composition classroom. And so we were talking about argument. And so I remember giving my students an excerpt of Malcolm X's speech at the Audubon. It came from this book, Malcolm X Speaks. Yeah. Yeah. And Okay. Yeah. And I had them analyze the speech, but I remember when I asked them questions, it was like dead silence. So I said, okay, well maybe they need some time to analyze the speech. So I told them like write a one page analysis of the speech. And the next day we were talking about it, but I realized that they felt very uncomfortable with Malcolm X. And so when I read that, where, where were you teaching at this point? It was uh, Miami university in Oxford, Ohio. Right. So, so culturally it was outside of the Tennessee experience then the, that kind of, so yeah. So, so that, I, I think that that's important because I mean, you're, you're coming from that experience going to the other. <laughs> yeah. So they were uncomfortable. Oh yeah. Because, uh, they are coming from Memphis where it's like majority black city and yeah. going to Oxford, Ohio, where it's 4% black, that there was a shock. Yeah. And that the students that their understanding of Malcolm X was totally different. And some of the things that they wrote about him was like shocking where they called him a communist and they called him some curse words and yeah. they really did not like him. And so it made me interested first in writing a thesis about how, because they, these were students who were born around like 84, 85. So we weren't that far in age at that time. And so think about the media images of how they learn about King and Malcolm X. And so there began my thesis, master's thesis about King and Malcolm X in the post-Reagan years. So late 80s, early 90s. So I looked at like the movie Malcolm X, um, looked at children's books, biographies, and how they constructed King and Malcolm X as well. And even documentaries to understand how the media images and representation narratives may affect the way they learned about those two leaders. And so when I got into my PhD program at the University of Kansas, that started continuing that research and then I formed research about composition readers. So these are like textbooks that are used in first year writing classroom to teach students about uh, models for writing and also teach them about rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So I looked at the books and I noticed, okay, well, you see Malcolm X, he's usually represented through the autobiography of Malcolm X. You usually see the story where he conks his hair, straightens his hair, and yeah. they have that excerpt. And then the store and then the story where he's in prison and he's um going through his self-education process and the talks about the books he reads, the history and things like that. And I noticed that Let's say when the story about when he's teaching himself about these various forms of history and books that in the autobiography, that chapter is called Saved. But then in the textbooks, it's called like learning to read or my homemade education. So it gives a different impression of what he was trying to do when he was in prison. And. It was also a case, too, about teaching rhetoric is that when it's usually with African-Americans that most textbooks often give like a Western form of rhetoric, saying like rhetoric is a form of persuasion, available means of persuasion, what Aristotle says. But then I felt it was a bit limiting because like what about the other dimensions of rhetoric, especially within African-American community? Mm -hmm. And so it's like how these works are reformatted. 
to fit into a white Western paradigm. And so a lot of information is lost in the process. You know, I, could you um, elaborate on that a bit? Um, so you talked about the Aristotelian um, uh, sort of modes of rhetoric, let's put it that way. Uh, so what would you say is uh, different about the African-American uh, tradition of rhetoric? So like in a Western standard of rhetoric is usually emphasis on, let's say, the speaker or the writer. And so that's the person who is one like people listen to that person. That's the one who has all the agency. Right. And so it's more like a hierarchy of sorts. So the speakers at the top and the audience and it's kind of like to the bottom. Whereas with African-American rhetoric is more, let's say. So I would say Western rhetoric is more vertical. Yeah. But then African-American rhetoric is more horizontal. Sorry for yeah. clarify. So in that case is that it's not just one where the audience is, let's say, receptive to the message, but it's more like a back and forth exchange. Yeah. It's like the difference between reading a Malcolm X speech and hearing a Malcolm X speech. Right. <laughs> yeah. When you hear the audience laughing back and, and I mean, there's, there's a real energy flowing but, you know, back and forth between uh, the speaker and the audience when Malcolm X speaks. I myself, I, I think he's the greatest orator in the English language, period. I mean, people talk about Winston Churchill and all, for me, not at all. I, Malcolm X, I mean, yeah, uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech is, you know, spine tingling. You know, I, nobody cannot be moved by that. That That's an incredible uh, oratorical piece, but but I don't know something about Malcolm and the consistency of Malcolm X's um, speech. It, it's I just think there's uh, nothing can match it in the English language, in, in my view. Yeah, but but it is interesting. Uh, yeah, about the the vertical and horizontal um, uh, aspects of it, which you which you uh, talked about. Yeah, yeah, the, with Malcolm X did. It's more like somebody who's like talking to you, like, just let me rap to you. It's kind of very vernacular. That's right. It's almost like a comedian sometimes because yeah. he like depends on the on the feedback and reaction, and and he's funny. And this is what a lot you know people call him, an, you know, an ang the angriest black man in America or whatever. But he was hilarious as well. He was very very witty and funny. Oh yeah, that. Um what I call like an African-American rate about signifying it's kind of like how you use like some verbal uh, cues or things like that. It's a way to make jokes or put downs or yeah. things like that. And people were laughing with him. Like he would say, you know, yeah, you know, you can sit side by side together on the toilet. Yeah. You know? That's, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The perfect pause, you know, delivery. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> or he would say you do too much singing and not enough swinging. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's yeah. he's amazing. He's really amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, right. So, so yeah. You're you're talking about uh, yeah. How in the uh, readers, they you know they were sort of limiting their analysis using Western uh, standards of um, of analyzing the rhetoric. Yeah, and so. That affects the way students read things and ideas that because this doesn't fit into their Western paradigm in a very neat way that is often seen as something that's like outside, but not exactly the model 
to use for writing or communicating. And so how that affects African-American communication when it's formatted in textbooks that is seen as something of interest, but not as something like a serious form of study. Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, I I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Sawyer's um, uh, book, uh, Black Minded. Have you heard of that? I haven't heard of that. Right. Yeah. It's recently published this year. I interviewed him on this series as well. It's about the thought of Malcolm X. And uh, he, um, so, you know, so he was speaking about, you know, how he was, you know, very much into the, the, the black tradition and intellectual, uh, you know, philosophy, black philosophy, right? So um, that's kind of his, his thing. And, uh, you know, so he was um, speaking about people like, you know, Franz Fanon, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the other people. Not, I, I don't, I can't remember if he was looking at Du Bois, but, but you know, du, du Bois would be part of that because, you know, he wrote so much and all this. Whereas, and he, and Michael Sawyer sort of skipped over Malcolm X in his academic um, tradition, even though Malcolm X was so important to him, you know, a, you know, in terms of his consciousness, and and he realized that uh, because Malcolm X <clears throat> didn't write really, not even the autobiography, the autobiography was by his hand. It was Alex, you know, as told to Alex Haley. Um, Malcolm X was an orator. He was a he was a speech writer. Mm-hmm. And, well, not a speech writer. He was a speech giver, a speech maker, um, and and so. You know, I, and I was telling Michael, you know, ex- exactly the, this, you know, I have the same thing because in, in my bookshelf here, in, in my, you know, home office here, I have all my books all over the place. And I, I categorize them in a way uh, that's meaningful to me, not necessarily to the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> or, or whatever. And under my political philosophy section, I, you know, I have Malcolm X right there with Nietzsche and, you know, Plato and, and what and Hobbes and, and whatever, you know, because in my mind he's a theorist. Even though um, when you look at, uh, I mean, he he didn't write theory, right? But then again, neither did Plato, right? Plato wrote dialogues, and people have him as a philosopher. So he, and but uh, people take Plato seriously, but they don't take Malcolm X's speeches seriously. And I think is, is it something like that you're talking about? Well, yeah, because even thinking about him being anthologized in a writing textbook is that we have like the stories where he's doing something that's almost just like basically just talking about himself, but there's no real comment. It doesn't offer that much commentary about how it reflects a larger institutional forces. So like the one where he's in prison where is basically a critique about the educational system that he received when he was in school and also at large as well. And that the fact that he was giving history that was from a worldview standpoint, that he was talking about how people should look at themselves in, in part of the world instead of just looking at themselves within just a country itself, that they're a global citizen. Yeah. And that it reflects his argument that he even says within the chapter about how people shouldn't just see themselves as part of civil rights, that they should look at as human rights. Right. And that how his experience is an illustration of this. So, yeah, we don't really get to see how he dev- that he's, he's considered a theorist, even though he may not write like a we say a traditional theorist does. Yeah. But I would say it is because this is a case where we have his narratives, but 
I think a lot of other things that he had was very compelling, especially like when he had his debates in Oxford or at Harvard. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I, I always go back to Plato and Socrates, right? I mean, when Plato wrote, I mean, Socrates didn't write anything at all. Mm-hmm. And Plato, you know, in, in writing his, his Socratic dialogues, there was no, you know, it was not, an, these weren't essays or instructions. It was dialogues, dramatic dialogues. And, and yet, you know, he's taken so seriously, but, but the, you know, um, Malcolm X is sometimes, uh, you know, by many not taken, not given the same weight as, say, a Fanon or Du Bois, yeah, or let alone a Hegel or a Marx or something, you know. Right. And so I agree with that because it's also a case where people theorize, let's say, about race or things like that. And this happened when I was in school. We would read works of literature by African-Americans that they would try to adopt like theories from Freud or Lacan or people like that. And I would disagree with them because I said, well, they weren't writing these theories with people like me in mind. Yeah. So that if you're going to talk about African-American experience, there wouldn't be better to have theories that were written by African-Americans to help address that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's a case where in one that's trying to say that Malcolm X has a lot of good things to say. And that if you listen to his speeches there, he is theorizing a lot of things because I was, I was fascinating about the way that he talked about, uh, let's say, forming coalitions or the role of the liberal within the movement as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah you know, his, his critique of, of, of liberal democracy, his, you know, his, his critique of history, of historiography, you know, his, his yeah, all, all that, you know, you, of, of uh, even, you know, his expounding of nationalism, mm. you know, and, uh, and, and revolution. I mean, he, he has, you know, very, very important uh, ideas and all these things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it's interesting we talk about revolution because I taught a class on the rhetoric of King and Malcolm X last fall. And that was one of the assignments where I had them examine how Malcolm X and King use that word revolution, especially when we talked about the year 1963, what the press called it, the Negro Revolution. And about how King was saying that this is a unique revolution because this is a revolution where it can be done through nonviolence. And, but Malcolm X was just like, well, who ever heard of a nonviolent revolution? Yeah. And saying that history has said that revolution requires violence. And are you willing to uh, have that in order to get your rights and your manhood eventually? Yeah. 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 So, well, so what is the main argument of your dissertation? So the main argument was that when having African-American writers, speakers like King and Malcolm X within these writing anthologies, that we should put them within first their historical and cultural context, because also not only did I look at their text, but also what they call biographical headnotes. And this was like biographies that were written before you actually read the text itself. Yeah. And so how sometimes when they would put them without in there and without that historical framework, And so then students tend to apply these writers through a current lens without actually situating themselves within that particular historical cultural moment when that person was speaking or writing and that we should be aware of that. And that also as well, when we discuss these things in the discussion questions that 
they should also have questions about related to the African-American rhetorical tradition to help further situate those writings and uh, speeches within their cultural context as well. So, uh, for example, let's say with Malcolm X is that, you know, in the United States, a lot of people say Malcolm X, but then I noticed in like international circles, some people use El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. Yeah. And so I was saying, what happens if instead of us saying Malcolm X, we actually said that name El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz and put in parentheses Malcolm X, how would that influence the way we see him? Mm-hmm. And would that also help us think of him within an international context and also with it also further this idea that he was a human rights leader. Yeah. 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 And even also with the biography that it always, I noticed that they would say, well, he was a very articulate spokesperson for black anger in the 1960s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah. I was like, that's uh, what, what we're articulate problematic but also saying anger yeah it's also crazy as i did if somebody's violent and so we forget that you know his father was part of the garvey movement so then why mm-hmm. not talk about that in the biography um talk about talk about the uh, nation of islam that people's it's originally lost foundation of islam but that it's a case where he did separate from them but then he became a sunni muslim and that he began to Talk, well, he always did talk about human rights. And so that human rights part is not always discussed. Is always saying that he was part, he was a civil rights leader. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is a total, I mean, he, he would be you know, aghast. <laughs> he, would, he would rip that apart. I can imagine how he would rip that apart if he read that about himself. Yeah. That, and then he's always, um, Contrasted with Martin Luther King, because I noticed that with the biography that they were saying that, you know, that he was, uh, um, he did, he disagreed with King or things like that. And so it's always yeah. made like the adversary. And, yeah. you know, as people forget that, you know, before he was assassinated, he did go to Selma, he did speak around in the chapel. And things like that. So it was always I thought about the as the great what ifs of history. If he lived, there would he be in part of a coalition of sorts. Yeah. yeah. And then and, and and what about the um the I, I mean the the basis of of the uh, you know apparent op- you know opposition or let's say the sometime opposition of of. Malcolm X and King, because obviously, I mean, Malcolm X did savagely criticize Martin Luther King sometimes, mm-hmm. and um, uh, but but the way it's popularly portrayed is, you know, that the basis is violence versus nonviolent. That that is a, such a skewed perspective because Malcolm X was never violent either. Huh. You know, so it's not like it's not like Malcolm X's Che Guevara or something. Right. Um, right. He, he, he wasn't toting a gun around or, or blowing up places or or whatever. So. So, you know, uh, what did you analyze that um, that type of uh, what I would say? Sorry. What I would say is a false distinction saying, you know, about the, the, the way they characterize the difference between the two about violence and nonviolence. Oh, yeah. Like some of the biographies would talk about that and saying that how 
he sometimes advocated violence or things like that. And it was a direct yeah. contrast to the peaceful movement of Martin Luther King. But then it's like, like you said, that he wasn't advocating violence. He was based yeah. on our self-defense. Yeah. And I tell people there's a difference between the two. Yeah. Because you're saying that we're nonviolent with people who are nonviolent with us. But however, if somebody, you know, hits you and paraphrase what he said, you know, send them to the cemetery. Yeah. But but and and even though he said that, is he didn't organize, you know, vigilante campaigns or anything like that. You know what I mean? Right. So so, so even though he, he did say that, so it was more of a, a philosophical and historical difference. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it, it, in no way was it really a practical difference in the sense that, I mean, the Muslims were not a violent group, right? The, the black Muslims. And then even the organization of Afro-American unity was not a violent group. But it's just that philosophically, uh, he wasn't against it in the way that, that King almost, you know, fetishized the nonviolence, like he made it such a, a, a big point. Um, I think it was more like Malcolm X didn't see why the nonviolence thing was, was raised so much. It, it's about, you know, black freedom and liberation. That, that, that's the main thing, not whether you're violent or not. That's the way I interpret it. What about you? Yeah, that it was a case where it wasn't, Violence for violence' sake. It was more like self-defense. Is that it, he? So yeah, the, it was more about self-defense, and that if it were to happen, then you have a right to defend yourself. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and and, and people don't realize even King had his people. Like, what's what's that guy's name? He wrote the book Negroes with Guns. Oh, Robert um, Williams. Yeah, Robert Williams. I mean, um, King had World War II veterans uh, protecting him. Uh, snipers and stuff that a lot of people don't know about, you know, so, um, (laughs) so, you know, so there's this kind of false uh, separation between the two, you know, he had his bodyguards, he had his people who were going to protect him and and, and not, not, and not by singing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That he probably had a case where I think when King went to Mississippi at the time for the March Against Fear and the Deacons for Defense were like in the, yeah outskirts and things like that. They were just making sure. So yeah. it was always there, but he embraced nonviolence as a way of life. Yeah. That it's a case that I tell people that, and I had to tell my students that because they always say that he advocated violence. I'm like, no, there's a difference between violence and self-defense. Yeah. That he was a case where he was saying that America itself is violent. It was based on violence, but he's like, he didn't advocate it that yeah. he advocated if somebody were to do something, you should defend yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because Malcolm X thought it absurd. People celebrate the 4th of July and uh, that wasn't a nonviolent occasion. And, and yet they condemn, you know, uh, uh, you know, just talk of, of, of what a real revolution is, you know, and at the time in the sixties, there were revolutions going on in Algeria, you know, in Africa and Asia, all over the place. And, and Malcolm X linked up, uh, linked the Afro-American struggle to the global struggle for freedom. Yeah, oh yeah. That he used the example of the Mau Mau's in Kenya. Yeah. Yeah. And about how saying that they could, Get their, how they got their freedom and things like that. Yeah, that he used those historical examples, like talking about 
American Revolution with Patrick Henry, where Patrick Henry talked about give me liberty or give me death. Yeah. And how that was a part of it. Yeah, that's. And I'll even talk to my students about that, where we talked about how maybe even geography probably played a part in how King and Malcolm X communicated as well. Yes. And their background influence their, how they presented things to their audience. Yeah. You know, Claiborne Carson, do you, you know, you know him and his work? Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 I interviewed him uh, on his, his um, work on Malcolm X and, and he has, I, his introduction to the Malcolm X files is just amazing. And, uh, and he has this, this really insightful distinction, distinction, uh, saying that, you know, King was actually very grounded in the black tradition, the black community, I would I would assume like you were in a in a majority black, you know, uh, black city or or you know whatever settlement wherever it was, village, town, city, whatever, and uh, so and uh, you know in the church, in the institutions, in in a in a sort of full black life, as opposed to the kind of alienated urban ghetto um, existence where, where you're, you know, you're a minority, um, you're alienated from the society around you and, and, and the people around you. Uh, it's, it's a different kind of consciousness. I mean, you, you even sort of alluded to it saying when you moved to Ohio and there was just 4% black as opposed to majority black, what a, what a difference that was to you. And, and what Claiborne Carson was theorizing or saying was that, you know, um, that, you know, King uh, appealed and came from and out of the more rooted um, uh, black struggle because, too, you know, he, he was part of a whole tradition, right, of, of, of the black church and, and all that, which he drew upon. Uh, whereas Malcolm X sort of spoke, uh, you know, spoke quite differently and used a different type of rhetoric. Um, that, that to him, he said, was actually a bit, you know, more marginal and less dangerous to the FBI because it's the FBI files he was talking about um, than King's was because King could really cause a social upheaval in a way that uh, Malcolm X was more of a marginal figure. I, I just thought that was very interesting, even though I am more partial, um, <laughs> yeah, much more partial to Malcolm <laughs> X than uh, Martin Luther King. But I think there's a lot of validity in what he said. Uh, but you know, you your your experience is so fascinating to me because of that. Because you come from you know Tennessee, Memphis, you know the you're you're rooted in you know in in the whole history and experience. Uh, what do you think of that argument Claiborne uh, was talking about? I would agree with that because it's interesting. I talked to my students about that because I talked about how you know King he grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and so. Know his father, grandfather were ministers, and they were both social activists. I think one grand, his grandfather had found the Atlanta branch of the NAACP. His right. father advocated for better salaries for teachers, and so he talked about how his father, you know, he ran a stop sign, and the police officer said called him a boy, and so he pointed to his son and saying, "That's a boy, I'm a man," and the cop got very nervous. So it's like you saw images of. Black people who were doing things from all walks of life, who owned businesses. And also he went to Morehouse, which was in the Atlanta University system where there were a lot of 
historically black colleges. Yeah. So even though you did experience the ugliness of racism, you still had a community yeah. to help support you and ground you within all of that as well. Yeah, that's right. And the whole gamut of people from authority figures and leaders and business owners and, you know, as opposed to the kind of, you know, marginal existence, like from a ghetto or something like that, you know, where, where it's um, more just lower end. Yeah, because it's interesting, even when I talk to people who grew up during that time of segregation, like family members and things where they would say, you know, it was racism where they had to go through Jim Crow and segregation. But when they talked about, let's say, their high schools or their college experience, they said they had very excellent teachers that they didn't feel that they were shortchanged because the teachers gave them a sense of being excellent, that you had to be the best. And so they learn about black history in those schools. And so they had a sense of pride when they graduated. What I'm interested too is in your story, when you talk about um, when you were seven, you said, and you, and you first heard Malcolm X and Eyes in the Prize. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if you saw the the, um, the documentary One More River. Have you ever seen that? I think it's um, familiar with it. That's the one that's like Henry Louis Gates or... Maybe no, thinking. no, it's actually from like 65, but it's a Canadian documentary oh. from the CBC. Mm-hmm. And they have like, they have like the civil rights circle, but they have these excerpts of Malcolm X, but they never say who it is. They just have the clips. Mm. And, and I mean, when I, when I saw, when I saw that the first time too, it's just like that, it, that was in the maybe early mid eighties or something before Malcolm X was, you know, a, a mainstream figure or whatever. And, it's just, you know, you weren't sure who that was and, you know, um, but he was just so mesmerizing. But yeah, well, one thing I want, because you said, you know, the way you were just caught, you know, by, by Malcolm X, I, I think I, I understand what you mean in a very personal way. But, um, you know, coming from the rooted black tradition, it's not necessarily, you know, um, uh, how... In, in, in what ways did, did Malcolm catch you? The way he spoke, because I say with King is that he used a lot of metaphors when he spoke. And you could tell that he had a love for words in terms of how he spoke is very slow, very gradual. So yeah. you could tell that he's also grounded in that black preaching tradition. Yeah. Whereas Malcolm X did, you could tell that he was grounded in a vernacular tradition where he was in a very working class environment. Yeah. And so you could tell that his style of speaking was very direct and it was meant mm-hmm. to had a sense of urgency to it in terms of it fostered a very immediate response. Yeah. And so it was like a case where somebody is on the street corner and they're doing signifying or playing a dozens or something like that, where you could tell that he was very adept in debate and also trying to get a response and also the words that he used were very concrete and yeah. it was more I say what's the how to describe it that like he, like, didn't, he didn't care about who if if there were uh people outside the black community listening that that's right yeah that yeah it was, and, and, and it was very real you know like he, it was a conversational Mm-hmm. He was talking to you. Whereas with, when you listen to Martin Luther King, you know it's a speech. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. That's not like the way two people talk to each other. But with Malcolm X, it's like he's talking to you. It's like you're, you're, 
it's like you know it's very very real and immediate as you say yeah definite definite yeah there's yeah, you could tell that his intended audience a lot of times were black people yeah 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 so now so your thesis looks at the way um Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were um, presented in, in five readers, the Bedford Reader, Rereading America, Patterns for College Writing, The Conscious Reader, and A World for Ide- of Ideas. And you have um, uh, four sort of uh, conclusions from your analysis, which are interesting, just about uh, that, you know, students, they're almost sort of guided to see Malcolm X and Martin Luther King uh, according to the popular narratives, um, which may be very simplistic and, and not, uh, uh, and deficient in many ways. And then two, it provides little or inaccurate historical context to ground the selections. Three, uh, they actually alter the original sources of King and Malcolm X's text. That's interesting. And, uh, four, it formats King and Malcolm X's rhetoric according to the Western rhetorical tradition while ignoring the African-American dimensions in the rhetoric, which we kind of discussed earlier. But uh, you, you want to elaborate a bit more on, you know, the other three? About I think we did kind of talk about the popular narratives, but uh, if you want to elaborate on that, or certainly elaborate more about the little or inaccurate historical context, which I think is very important, and also altering the original sources. That's very uh, significant. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I guess I'll talk about the biographical narrative. So I think I mentioned a little bit about that, like with Malcolm X, where they talk about how well, it's kind of like the story about where he grows up, where his father is killed, the way they frame it. His father is killed. Then he enters a life of crime. He discovers religion with the nation of Islam. And then he's assassinated after he you know, makes his pilgrimage to Mecca. So. Yeah. There's a lot of things are left out in their narrative. <laughs> so yeah. we don't really understand, like, what is the philosophy of the nation of Islam, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, and then even talking about how his father was killed and how his mother was institutionalized and he went to prison, that it runs a dangerous slope for these stereotypes of uh, black people, especially yeah. when you frame it with a narrative about when he's in prison. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of institutions, the institutional forces that led him to end up going to prison are not included within it. So talking about in terms of how institutional racism, you know, affected his early childhood, mm-hmm. even up to his adulthood. Yeah. And so we don't get how all of that factor into his life in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And then when it's saying he's a part of the nation of Islam, that, we don't understand the philosophy of the nation of Islam and also as well, what was his philosophy later when he left the nation of Islam? So we don't even, even the context of nation of Islam, because it, it sounds like, Oh wow. That's like something so weird. Mm-hmm. But you know, like, like I, I love Isain Udom's um, work on the nation of Islam in black nationalism. I think it was in the sixties. He wrote that about the whole tradition of, you know, of black, you know, radical religious political traditions, you know, even including like Rastafarianism and then all the kind of the five percenters and, you know, a a whole gamut that the nation of Islam, you know, existed in this sort of universe of, um, of, of black protest, kind of black protest religious tradition, you know, in, in a sense. 
Um, yeah, and and that's usually missed out. Like the nation of Islam is just kind of seen as singular when it's certainly not. Right. That is part of a larger tradition like the Garvey movement or yeah. the Science Temple. That mm-hmm. yeah. It's part of their larger tradition and that, you know, that it was basically within the African-American community. And even with that is that it was within a small segment of the community yeah. when he joins. And it had a very northern appeal for most people rather than yeah. the South that even though they had, let's say, branches in Atlanta or like Baton Rouge didn't, didn't take off as much in the South as it did up north. Yeah. And so all that is not included then. Even with Malcolm X's philosophy about black nationalism, for example, we don't hear anything about that in the biographies. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and that's that's, in fact, the uh, the main motivation of putting this series together for the New Books Network. Because you know, and and I mean, and and that ignoring of black nationalism is sort of what makes them, uh, you know paint Malcolm X as a civil rights leader when it's, uh, you know, far from, from the truth uh, and, and far from what he advocated. Not that he did not want rights for black people, but he framed it in an entirely different way, you know, in terms of black nationalism, in terms of human rights. But, um, yeah, uh, let's see. There's a, a couple of things I, w- I wanted to also further talk about. Um uh, okay, let, well, I guess in terms of your thesis, just methodo- methodologically, it, uh, so we'll, we'll go down that path a little. Um, so, like, how did you collect and analyze your data? Um, you know, so who are your subjects? You know, what what kind of things were you looking for and how were you looking at it? So the first thing I did was to find the textbooks. And so I wanted to find ones that were, let's say, the most popular. And that was a bit of a challenge because when you ask publishers about what are their best selling books, they kind of hesitant about telling you what's their uh, selling books for some reason. So I had to go like on, let's say, Amazon or Barnes and Noble and kept looking at what were the most frequently sold textbooks. And so they had Malcolm X and King in there. And so from there, try to see which ones were the most anthologized in terms of King and Malcolm X. So like make a list of all those books and then also what were the most frequently used uh, writing. So like say with Malcolm X, it was the one about him conquering his hair or him in prison. And so with King, it was I Have a Dream, a letter from Birmingham jail. And so from there, it's like, okay, I'll just see how they talk about these particular texts. And so to analyze it, I analyze it through they call it a cultural historical framework. So mm-hmm. this is where I use biblical studies. So analyzing what happens when you take writings that were created in a particular time in history for a particular audience and with a particular cultural a lot of cultural um, nuances to it in terms of people understanding a lot of things related to it that they may not understand later on because the culture is different. And you place it in an anthology for a different purpose, for a different audience. What are some things you should consider or be aware of? Yeah. And so studying, so I went to biblical studies to help me with that. Uh, And 
like hermeneutics and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and even with the textbooks themselves, it was interesting because that's when I realized about how corporate publishing is, especially with textbooks. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's like the bigger, biggest publishing firms are usually Pearson, uh, Bedford St. Martin's, and then mm-hmm. part of these large conglomerates. And then it's also, and trying to talk to a publisher, it's talk about who exactly is doing the, who are the editors of these textbooks? And are there any editors of color and who, who do these textbooks and how they may affect things? Yeah. And then also with the textbooks, found in terms of who is the audience for these textbooks, because I found out that depending upon the region of the country, the United States, that affects who would buy a particular textbook. Like, right. for example, that on the East or West Coast, they wanted more text, textbooks to emphasize multicultural right. things. Whereas if you go into the so- South, that they wanted more about what they call modes of writing about exposition, narration, things like that. Or they wanted what they call great ideas readers, where you talk about theories and philosophies. And usually those theories and philosophies are usually white men. Mm-hmm. And so that affects the way they produce the textbooks and also how they narrate things as well. So that's when I realized how intricate the whole textbook process is that not only do they have a editor, but they also consult people as well as what they think was, will sell. Yeah. And also they go to conferences and they also do like surveys or focus groups about what um, readings are work better than others. And also how would they teach these things? And also talking to teachers because teachers themselves are sometimes nervous about teaching certain things. And so that, yeah, you, you have a little quote that I like. Uh, you have somebody saying, uh, you know, I like Malcolm X, but I'd just be too uncomfortable about teaching that in my classroom. As a white person, I'm too scared of teaching that. How do I deal with his language? Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I've heard a lot over the years where people are saying, I want to teach things, these things, but I'm scared to do so because I don't know what to do. And well, was that kind of like a, what a focus group kind of study you did, interviews, or was it just like an anecdote you had? What, what was that from? It was for anecdote. Um, right. Yeah. And sometimes it was too, is that at one point I was like an assistant when I was in, Kansas as an administrator and we would do like textbooks and things like that to see which textbook we should adopt. And yeah, from listen, talking to people that they had those concerns about yeah. it because they felt that in their training, and this is also something that affects how we teach things that their training doesn't give them the information about, let's say how to teach African-American rhetoric or, Native American rhetoric, anything that isn't basically white and Western. Yeah. They don't have that knowledge. It's that basically they will always learn that rhetoric is Aristotle, it's ethos, yeah. pathos, logos, and yeah. that is always meant to persuade. Mm-hmm. And when you've been taught that for so long and then there's other things out there that tell you, wait a minute, what? maybe everything doesn't fit neatly into their paradigm. It's like they don't know what to do. Yeah. And then also comes the question about how do you deal with the language in these texts? 
So it comes, I guess, to one of the things I had in my dissertation, especially more with King than Malcolm X about how the texts were altered. So like with I Have a Dream speech, there's like another version I found in the textbooks. Well, for example, I'm paraphrasing an original version. like I have a dream down in Alabama with his governor, with his vicious racist, things like that. And you don't have that in some of the textbooks. It's like the wording has totally changed. Wow. So So they they soften it. Oh, yeah, soften it so you don't have the vicious racist part in there. Or like letter from Birmingham jail that people don't know. It's like there's two versions of it. So it's letter from Birmingham City Jail, which the one that was in pamphlet form. Then there's another one he revised and put in while we can't wait letter from Birmingham jail. And so textbooks usually do the one that was revised and in the book version of while we can't wait. And so you don't really see the same intensity that you would see in the original version. Yeah. So like the original version, I would say it's almost like a Pauline epistle where even though it was written to those clergymen, it was actually written to a wide, a larger audience to be heard and read. And that it was a case where it was meant to be spoken out loud that you can hear the preaching tradition within the text itself. Whereas in the revised version, the grammar, not the yeah, the things like that have been changed to make it a little bit more, I won't say soft or toned down. Because I remember I used to teach revision by using those two versions of letter from Birmingham jail. I remember I had a student, white woman, who was saying that I think the second version was meant for white people to make them feel better. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, it's a case where that, and so I will see that happening where people, they want to, call themselves being multicultural. They want to include these texts, but they're afraid because nobody's ever taught them about how to handle issues of language. Most specifically, how do what happens when you have a text that has the N word in it? Yeah. And then do you say it? Do you just not just skip it altogether? And what do you do about those situations? Yeah. And so yeah, that's interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, well, what would your advice be to somebody, like, say, teaching Huckleberry Finn or something, and it has the N-word in it? And Usually, the person is not African-American. And the class is maybe not African-American, maybe one, you know, one or two, you know, so there's a minority presence, a very, you know, uh, what, so, you know, the sensitivity becomes very, uh, very crucial to consider, uh, even more. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that... It's a case where I would say like, um, you know, kind of like in those uh, TV shows or things like that, where they would have like this beginning where they was like how they say discretion is advised or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and before we get into actually talking about the reading, I would do, I won't say do something similar, but I would give them a historical overview. Yeah. So that way they can help situate themselves within that time period. And also, give them a history about the words themselves, because let's say, for example, I teach a class too on autobiographies from the civil rights movement. So you can imagine the language that's in a lot of those autobiographies. Yeah. And so what I would do is that I would give them a lesson about terminology. Yeah. And like, for example, with the N word, I would give them an etymological overview about the word itself. Right. Where did the word originally come from? 
how did it enter into the English language? How was it used and well form and things like this? So that way it gives them some type of context to understand how the word itself became offensive. Yeah. And also as well that we do background about terminology to describe people of African descent who were slaves in America, where we go from, let's say, color to Negro, to black and African-American, and that we had that conversation. Also, how did the culture, why did the culture want to change their identity, their title, and what was the reasoning behind it? So it was almost like layering everything before we actually get to the reading itself. And so that way... When they see the language itself, it won't be as that they're prepared to yeah. understand it. Yeah, you know that this that's really interesting about and you know because you're really talking about intercultural communication, right? That that these are you you really are saying you know they're they're two significantly different cultural worlds and and that there are definite gaps. Uh, that if you know, it's it's like anthropology, you know, uh, moving from one sphere to another. So you know, especially since you are from Tennessee, I would love and Memphis, Tennessee. I would love to hear your opinion uh, on the idea uh, of the Afro-American nation that that African Americans are in fact a nation. You know, the Black Belt thesis that, you know, that the communists had in the 1930s. And then uh, the Garveyites, not so much, but definitely Nation of Islam, even up to today, Farrakhan has that in the Final Call newspaper and and whatnot. Uh, Africa, uh, you know, that there isn't a nation physically in the Black Belt, but definitely culturally um, a, a legitimate nation. What, what's your view on that? I'd really love to know, given your experience and background. I would say it is. And I say that because, uh, yeah. especially within the United States, the history of segregation is that, yeah, that especially with the uh, failure of reconstruction and that, you know, black Americans lost a lot of their rights, voting rights and things like that, that the community had to look within itself. And that with segregation, that it did create a nation within a larger nation that had their own network of things. So for example, like going with the colleges that were for African-Americans, there was its own network. You had religion, you had a network of federation of churches that if you were going down South, then you needed to stay at a particular place that their preacher could call somebody on their route to let them know you were coming. So that way they can prepare for things that it was a nation that had to work within itself, within a larger group because they felt that, well, they didn't feel, but the country itself turned it back on them after reconstruction. And they had the nadir race relations where they faced so much racial hostility that they had to look towards each other as a community. And so I think as a result of that, that it did create separation in a lot of different ways. So people just think physically with buildings or things like that, but also with culture, communication, everything of that nature. So that what happens when you have desegregation now is almost a case where you enter into those spaces, but because of segregation historically and also de facto that you had a dominant culture who doesn't know how to communicate with you because they didn't have to. 
and they chose not to because they felt it wasn't necessary. And then you had African-Americans come to these spaces where the way they communicated that it was always misunderstood or misrepresented. And so it's a case where, you know, when the current commission said that our society becoming two separate societies, black and white, separate, unequal. And I think that in some ways that reflects the communication practices that it became two communication practices, separate and unequally judged well, for African-Americans. And mm-hmm. so that becomes a hard part is that now as we have to try to live within this culture, how do we try to communicate with each other? And part of it is also learning about African-American culture in a way that's, that's uh, respectful. And also it doesn't, and not trying to alter it to fit into the standards of the dominant culture. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I 100% agree. You know, I, I, I totally, totally believe that, you know, <laughs> African-Americans are a nation. I, 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 I support, you know, the nation of Islam thesis and, and the black belt thesis. I mean, we come from the Caribbean, right? All mm-hmm. our islands are independent countries. You know, I mean, so, so we, uh, you know, we, you know, I, from my perspective, it's not strange that, that, you know, you should be an independent country <laughs> in that sense. I mean, uh, you know, it's it, from everything. I mean, even, you know, I, I tell this story a lot when I, I have some family in Minnesota and, you know, everyone's got that kind of Minnesota accent, you know, um, even if they're like Vietnamese or Indian or whatever, and when they acculturate. But then I remember seeing some, you know, African-Americans there uh, in Minnesota, not Somalians, but I mean, Afro-American, really descendants of slaves. And, um, and, yeah, and the, their their speech was absolutely different, and obviously tied to the South, right? So, so the uh, so all all the you know the black dialects of of the North ultimately come from the South, and then they're tied to Jamaica as well because that's where you know a, a lot of the the enslaved people from Africa were were brought to first, and then seasoned before going up to America. A lot of t- um, times, Jamaica was a, an important part of that. But yeah, and and I mean, but but so so they have you know it's their own language. You have things like the Chitlin Circuit and mm-hmm. a whole cultural you know the whole cultural references you know like so whereas you know sort of white America might talk about the Stones or the Beatles or Zeppelin in music, for example. You know, there there are there are things that, you know, white America would take for granted that black people in America would have no idea about. And 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 same the, the other way, you know, like so black America, you know, would have their their hero comedians and stuff like me, I don't know, someone like Dolomite or whatever. <laughs> and no and nobody would, you know, hardly anybody would know about it in like white America, unless they're into, you know, black culture, like hip hop, you know, that's broken so many uh, boundaries uh, and so forth, you know, but, uh, but there's, there's, it's like two different worlds. And, and to just think that, you know, the difference is, uh, you know, superficial and, you know, we it's, I, I think it's, it's a lot of disrespect as well, because there's a whole complex, you know, that has been developed in Afro-America, you know, and I, I prefer Malcolm X's term Afro-America as opposed to African-America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, th- there's a whole, um, you know, world that they created and, and that is, you know, 
uh, very, 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 very interesting and powerful and and whatnot. I, you know, uh, I'm not African American. My, uh, but I, but being from the Caribbean, I definitely, you know, that whole tradition of Africans in the West. I, I'm I'm part of it. My my own heritage is uh, Indian. Our family was here after slavery was abolished in the West Indies. We came to work the plantations after. Um, but yeah, so I mean, so, you know, definitely connected uh, to it here. Uh, but yeah, so I, I it, what you said makes total, total sense to me. And, uh, and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to hear your perspective, especially, as I said, coming from the black belt itself. I, I just feel it's, it's, it's a no brainer. But I don't know. It's controversial to say for many people. I I don't think it's controversial at all. <laughs> no, because um, I'm, it made me think about August Wilson, where he would say that people would look to African towards traditions for Black Americans, but he was saying, well, in some ways, our culture really is the South. That the South That's is right. kind of like where other pe- other groups were migrating from Western Europe. That is saying that we were doing the same thing, but our place of origin is the South. That's right. So like, so people like in like, you know, Philadelphia or, or they'll speak about the old country, like in Italy or Ireland or Poland or whatever, or Ukraine or, or, but black people in New York, they'll speak about Alabama or, uh, you know, or, or Tennessee or wherever their family came from, you know, like the old country. That's like the heartland. Isn't right. it? Yeah, because of the soul uh, food, all that oh, stuff. Oh yeah. yeah, migration patterns. Because people would say like Chicago is the northernmost county of Mississippi because so many yeah. people <laughs> left Mississippi and went to Chicago, and even in Milwaukee, there there's a big contingent of people who migrated from Mississippi and came to Milwaukee. So, yeah, that if you're from Detroit, chances are you came from Alabama. East yeah. Coast is like. Uh, Florida and, and the like. And, and it appears that Atlanta is the capital of Black America. Do you agree or disagree? I think it is in terms of now that Atlanta, that the culture, but I think it's a case where each uh, time frame is that that place becomes like the epicenter of Black culture. I remember at one point, maybe in the 70s, 80s, it was D.C. And yeah. then in the 90s, it really was Atlanta. And then now I think it's Houston and now Charlotte. Okay. Yeah. And so I think what happens is that those places become, you may have Atlanta because it's such a big city, but then you have yeah. other cities that really become like this focal place that you have the yeah. major cities. And I think those will be the major cities still. And then you have the ones maybe a tier below this. So like the medium sized cities like your Memphis, your Jackson, Mississippi, your St. Louis, places mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so so in so from your research and in, in, in looking at uh, these things and and you know and the intercul and taking up the lessons about you know intercultural communications and so forth like we talked about, you know, I, I usually like to ask authors and, and writers, you know, what what is the most important lesson for readers, you know, of your dissertation that that you would want people to take away from it? Uh, was it that or is it something else? See, I think one of the things I learned and also I want people to take away from is that that's a term that I found where I say that we're all walking texts. 
basically history and culture has shaped the way we see how we communicate, how we communicate with others, and also how we receive messages from people who may not be from our community or from our or one raised in our particular time period. And so imagine if you had all these groups who are walking text in one place, that in some ways it becomes a tower of Babel of source because everybody's communicating, but are we really understanding each other? And so it was a case where this is important about why you should, under, why you should learn someone's history and culture, because in doing so, you become a better communicator because you understand where they're coming from and that it could be another way of breaking down barriers in, form, in terms of discrimination. Because I think the way we communicate is one of the main reasons why there's a lot of uh, discrimination, because there's so much layers and cultural nuances in it that we don't know or never learned. And then once we do learn that, then that could help tear down those barriers that society has among various people. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, and to me, that's the most important thing about Malcolm X, you know, about, about learning about your history and who you are and, and, and your place in the world, not about violence. I mean, the, the, uh, you know, the way people frame it, they, it's like they totally missed the point of what, what he was talking about. And and since this is a um, series on Malcolm X, so I, I want to ask you, you know, so what is it a, uh, about Malcolm X and his struggle that you think it's most important for people to remember today? And maybe what what do people misunderstand? Because I think, you know, your your thesis really goes into a lot of distortions as well. So... So let's say what what are the uh, you know the the things that you think it's most important for for people to understand and what is perhaps most misunderstood or distorted. So I'll start off with the distortions. I think the distortion is that he was a foil for King, and that he was somebody who av- just advocated for violence for violence' sake, and that he was a rebel. In terms of saying that he just wanted to just burn things down, it's like, well, no, that wasn't who he was. He basically wanted to let people know about how they have been affected institutionally by society and how that racism seeped into those institutions. So really, he was talking about institutionalized racism before that was their term. Yeah. And that that's what he was really critiquing. And I think Mm -hmm. another thing that really... I learned from studying Malcolm X, I was one people to know about him is that he had a very good command of rhetoric and language. Yeah. That a lot of times he, especially his autobiography, he would talk about words and how basically how those words shapes one's reality. Yeah. And that when you, he said even in his speech where he says that once you change the way you see the world, you change your thought pattern, you change your thought pattern, you change the way how you describe the world. And I'm just paraphrasing it. But yeah. that those words have power. And that when you he memorized the whole dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean he 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 wrote it out and he memorized it. I mean that's amazing. Right. Because yeah. think about even when he was with Nation of Islam days, he would say the so called Negro. Yes. You know. That. Love that. I know he'd always say he he would never say he'd always say the so-called Negro. That's so packed full of meaning. Michael Sawyer and his thing, you know, analyzes that so much that the, the, that phrase, how important that is. Yeah, yeah. That and you're saying, but I was saying Afro-American, that mm-hmm. that was very 
you know, I would say not radical, but it was very thought-provoking. Yeah, it shifts the way you understand everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Even even when in the nation of Islam, when he was talking about black, right? So mm-hmm. that not Negro, but black. So the black revolution. So they 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 were the ones that um, made black uh, a positive word because black was used, but it was an insult. Oh, yeah. I mean, my father was telling me he was growing up. You call somebody black. That was grounds for a fight. Yeah. 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 And even the rhetoric of even your appearance. Yeah. You know, that it was going with that story about, you know, straightening his hair. And I remember my students first read that they were just like, what's the big deal? His hair. And so I had to give them a history of yeah. African-American hairstyles and things like that. And also from the textbook. And I had to give an alternate uh, narrative yeah. about that because in the textbook it would say black people hated their hair and so they were straightened it and this is part of a larger tradition it's like well it's more to it than just there's also uh, class distinctions as well yeah because the conch itself never just went out of style because you know you still have perms you still had jerry curls s curls and all that yeah you know that and it's also not about self-hatred sometimes it's a case where you don't own anything in society, only thing but your body. And so that's the only thing you can control. And so you do things with it. And it's one of the yeah. things you do with your appearance. That's right. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Well, um, we've reached the end of the interview, uh-huh. but I, I know you, you have a book out. I mean, I normally ask people, you know, if you have any projects and that you're working on, but I know you've just published a book. You want to just tell us a little bit about the book? And I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of overlap with, with this thesis, right? It is actually, because um, I have a whole chapter about uh, King in the book. Um, <laughs> but it's basically what happens when you have a discourse that was created in one community, in this case, African-American culture, and then it crosses over into the mainstream, what's altered, erased, or things like that. So I say what happened is that, so usually what happened is that when it crosses over into the mainstream, African-American discourse and culture is used for either entertainment or it's something that's considered to be controlled or contained because it's considered too dangerous because they understand the context of the culture. And so this creates a rhetorical dissonance of sorts between some whites and African-Americans where black people feel like they have to pay a black tax to enter into white spaces and that white people believe that racism more a personal situation rather than looking at it from an institutional situation. Right. Interesting. Interesting. And that's published by University of Pittsburgh Press. Yeah. Yeah. So I um, borrowed the Pretty idea good. of co- crossover from music. So I don't know if you're familiar with music where how a song, yeah. especially mm-hmm. in black culture, when it moved from the R&B charts to the pop, that it crossed yeah. over. And like in the case of like a Motown where they want to cross over. So they had to change the music to fit. That's right. Standards. <laughs> and I'm saying yeah. that rhetorically, African-Americans had to do that in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting. That's good, Mac. So uh, ho- hopefully on um, uh, maybe in uh, in one of our other channels, um, you'd, uh, you'd be able to talk about uh, that book. Uh, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure our hosts would love to do that. Oh, I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's really been both informative and enjoyable. 
Oh, thank you for interviewing me. I appreciate it. Well, once again, we were discussing the construction of Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in composition textbooks, rereading readers, a very insightful PhD dissertation by Cedric Burroughs. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in the future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.